You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. If you wait till the chocolate cake is on the fork, you're going to eat it. If you wait till the cigarette is lit in your hand, you're going to smoke it. If you sleep next to your cell phone every night, you're going to pick it up first thing when you wake up before you even say hello to your loved one. It's too late. You have already lost. It's about planning ahead. It's about using forethought. How do I know today that I will get distracted in the future unless I do something about it right now? So I can prevent distraction in the future by acting today, by having these systems in place. That was Nir Eyal, author of the best-selling book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Being indistractable isn't about never losing focus, but about building habits and responses to get traction back once you've lost it. In today's conversation, we dive into what it takes to get our focus and attention back, including a discussion about willpower being closer to a mood than a muscle. What would change for you if you played with the idea that willpower couldn't be depleted? I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Nir, thanks so much for joining me today. As I was telling you in the green room, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a year now, and we just had sort of ships passing in the night schedules when it comes to our book launches. So before I jump into things, congratulations. You're about a year out from the publishing of Indistractable, a little bit more than that, but great job on getting that out. And I've, it's been great to see its success in the marketplace. Oh, thank you so much, Charlie. I really appreciate that. It's so great to finally be with you. One of the things that I loved from the top is how you defined indistractable. Mm. Um, because it's not, I think, what people think you're saying and mm. that may get them to shut off from the top. So I'm going to let you say it in your own words. What does being indistractable mean? Yeah, so this is the fun part when you when you make up a word. <laughs> so I invented the word indistractable. It's not a real word. Uh, and so I get to define it any way I want. So becoming indistractable doesn't mean that you never get distracted, right? I still get distracted from time to time. The difference between a distractible person and an indistractable person is that an indistractable person strives to do what they say they're going to do, and they know why they got distracted. So there's, there's a, a wonderful quote that I've kind of adopted as a mantra for my life uh, that Poilo Coelho said. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. And what I found in my own life is that I would keep getting distracted by the same things day after day after day. How many people complain about social media distracted them again, email again, the news again, they're, you know, they didn't go to the gym again. They ate the wrong foods. They didn't spend time with their kids. They didn't work on that big project day after day after day. That's the difference. Now I know why I got distracted and I can do something about it. What I love about this definition is, again, it, it prevents the stories we might tell ourselves, the mindsets we might tell ourselves. Like, I can never be indistractable. I'm always getting distracted. I'm always getting pulled into something. So I can't even get into this, right? Whereas what I like is that you put it more on the striving or on the effort or that continual recommitment to refocus 
is what creates someone as being indistractable. And yes, we could look at sort of the triggers. We could look at the entry points of distractions, but we're not starting from a place where it's like, if you get distracted in the morning, then something's wrong with you. And you might as well just like do whatever you're going to do for the rest of the day. It's like, no, you can recommit. You can get back into it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's so interesting. You, you say that, um, the book has really revealed some interesting truths about human nature that I'm, I'm in a way still struggling with because what's been so interesting, you know, the book has sold over 300,000 copies. It's, it's really doing better than I ever expected. Uh, and it's, it's, it's being fervently adopted by some people and for others, it just goes right over their head. And those people, it's incredible. You know, sometimes I'll talk to, to, to folks, um, who, who haven't read the book, who, you know, who, who, who want what the book has to offer, right? Everybody, when you talk about, you know, would you like to follow through on what you say you're going to do? Do you want to finally, you know, write that novel you've been meaning to write? Do you want to finish the projects that you have on your plate? Do you want to, you know, exercise when you say you will? It's all about doing what you said you were going to do to live with personal integrity. And everybody wants that, but it's incredible how some people will find every reason why it won't work for them, right? Instead of trying the techniques, it's incredible how some people will say, well, yeah, but you know, my life is like this, or I have this special condition, or here's how I'm unique, or here's how I'm broken, and you can't fix me. Not that I want to fix you. It's I'm trying to help you fix yourself, <laughs> right? Or, or to fix your life, I should say. And this all comes from personal experience, right? I didn't write this book because I was indistractable, quite the opposite. I wrote this book because I'm probably one of the most distractible people on earth. <laughs> and so I wrote this to try and figure out how I can finally do what it is I say I'm going to do, how I can live with personal integrity. You know, I, I used to be clinically obese. Uh, I always struggled with self-control and willpower. And even saying those words kind of makes the hair on my neck stand up because, you know, I was always told, uh, when I was overweight that, you know, just have some more self-control, have some more willpower, what's wrong with you? And I internalized a lot of that. And it's it's really something I had to unwind because so many of us, we, we believe these self-limiting things, right? These self-limiting thoughts. There's a whole section in the book called reimagining your temperament. And part of this is is a security blanket. Part of it is that, well, if there's something wrong with me, if there's something that makes, that defines me, that somehow makes it so that I don't have to do these things. I don't have to struggle through this. Uh, I am. Uh, I have an addictive personality, quote unquote. I have. Uh, uh, I'm easily distracted. Uh, you know, you you name it, right? There's like a million things that people will label on top of themselves that basically prevents them from having to do the stuff that they want to do. <laughs> but that's the out. That's the that's the way to 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 not have to deal with those things that you know you want to do. You have an instant excuse, so to speak. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that because um, as I was writing Start Finishing, it was the same thing where I had to sort of start from this belief or from this assumption that you're not uniquely defective, and which is basically the story. Like whatever you say, like you can do this strategy, you can do this tip. And there's something in us where it's like, yeah, but that won't work because of this thing. Right. right, right. Um, yeah, that'll work for near that'll work for Charlie, but it's not going to work for me because my mom's sick or because of this or because of that. Right. So I'm not even going to try or I'm going to go in there. There's two, there's three or four, many different responses. So I'm not even going to try as one response, but the other is I'm going to go in there. And the second it gets hard, it's going to confirm the story I already have. Cause we have that confirmation bias. I've, I've got a distractible personality. So the second I get distracted is like, see, told you, yep. right. I can't change. And so, you know, I get to do this more on the coaching side where it's just saying like, 
what if we just change that whenever we have that identity statement of I am this or I can't that? What if we just said, historically, I've been incredibly distractible, right? Mm. It doesn't mean that it has to be my future. We can state the truth. I've been, <laughs> I've been this, I've been that. All of those things are true, but it doesn't mean that you have to stay that way. Right. right? right. Um, and that changes things. That opens up space for people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a few things here. Number one, I think there's some, uh, the, 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 there's some insight that we should take away from knowing, guess what? Everybody's like that. Okay. Like it's incredible. In the five years of research that I did for this book, I talked to a lot of people who felt they were very distractible and a lot of people who I would call indistractable even before I, I wrote this book. And I kind of wanted to study those people. And I thought these people were the kind of people who had unbelievable amounts of self-control, the kind of people that have incredible willpower. No, they didn't. What they had was a system in place. They were just as distractible as everybody else. And yet they had systems. They had steps that they took in their day to prevent from going off track. The second thing is this is why the book is titled Indistractable is because I want to replace these self-limiting beliefs, these labels we put on ourselves with an identity that helps us stay on track. So indistractable sounds like indestructible. It's a superpower. It's something we strive for. And so everyone can call themselves indistractable if you are the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do, the kind of person who strives to live with personal integrity. If you're just listening to the sound of my voice right now, you can call yourself indistractable and that becomes the new identity. So that instead of saying, I'm a morning person, I'm not a morning person, I'm a distract, you know, I, I, I have an addictive personality, I'm a this, I'm a that. No, you are indistractable. If you strive to do what you say you're going to do, if you want to live with personal integrity, you can call yourself indistractable. This is fascinating to me because over the last four or five years, um, as I've been thinking about my my distraction habits, I'll call it that way. I was about to say technology habits, mm. but I'm going to say distraction habits nonetheless, right? Those triggers and things like that. Um, one of the ways I've approached it is saying like, what if I actually had a addictive personality? Mm. What if I was prone, especially prone to this type of, this type of um, um, situation? Like what would I do in that? Sort of like if I'm an alcoholic, like there are certain things, if you own that and you know, that's the thing, like, you basically can go through environment design and social design and so many different things to not be present to so many of the things that are going to get you off course. Right. And so it's been this interesting thing. As I hear you say, like we can, we can claim being indistractable. I don't think it's incompatible to say, what if we were especially prone to distractions or what if that's our nature? Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't just that we always had to willpower and we'll get to willpower in a minute. Cause, um, your, your whole piece about willpower changed a lot for me, but mm-hmm. what if it were just one of those things that we just acknowledged, I struggle with this and it's a pretty big struggle. I'm going to stop pretending that it's a character issue. I'm going to stop pretending that I can just willpower and self-discipline and self-control my own and design it out, design, design my environment, design my technology, design everything accounting for that. I, I think those are mutually compatible to say I'm indistractable and I'm also super prone to this, right? Well, I, I would I would say that we have to ask ourselves which identities serve us versus which are we serving. Mm-hmm. And we you know there's there's two sections in the book that deal with identity because I think there's if there's one 
big lesson for me over the past several years of researching this topic is that behavior change necessitates identity change. Mm-hmm. And we have to make sure that we we dissolve these identities that don't serve us and adopt the identities that do serve us. And we do this all the time, all the time, right? Um, when you say that, uh, when someone says that they are a devout Christian or an observant Muslim or, or even a vegetarian, we adopt these identities because they serve us. They help us live out our values and help us become the kind of person we want to become. And so we can acknowledge that Look, all of us have temptations. All of us have urges to take us away from what we want to do. And by using these identities, right, this is if you study the psychology of religion, this is what you find, that having a moniker, having a label can be incredibly empowering as well. So it's not that having an identity and using it is a bad thing. It's about making sure that you're using the right identities instead of saying, oh, I have an addictive personality. There I go again. I'm such a schmuck here. This is what I always do. Instead, it's no, I'm indistractable, which means that I struggle with distraction like every other human being on the face of the earth. And here's what I'm going to do now to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. And so if there's one mantra from the entire book, if you want to summarize everything I've learned over the past five years, it's this, that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Let me say it again. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Procrastination and distraction are impulse control issues. It's not a character flaw. There's probably nothing wrong with you, right? Like the the difference is between somebody, you know, the, the amount of people who think they have an addictive personality or think that they have a, 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 a an attention deficit disorder versus those who actually do have the pathology, it's it's orders of magnitude more, right? Way more people think there's something wrong with them that are actually uh, have anything, you know, clinical about that. Uh, and so, it, you know, so, so, so what we want to do is understand that this isn't a character flaw. This isn't some kind of deficit that you have. It's simply that most people haven't learned the methods to manage those uncomfortable sensations, to manage the impulses that take them off track. And the way we do this, it's not by mastering willpower and self-control. We can talk about that willpower chapter. I think it's super important. It's about having these systems. It's about forethought, because if you wait till the last minute, you will lose. 100%, you will lose. If you rely on willpower and self-control to get you through, you will fail. If you wait till the chocolate cake is on the fork, you're going to eat it. If you wait till the cigarette is lit in your hand, you're going to smoke it. If you sleep next to your cell phone every night, you're going to pick it up first thing when you wake up before you even say hello to your loved one. It's too late. You have already lost. It's about planning ahead. It's about using forethought. How do I know today that I will get distracted in the future unless I do something about it right now. So I can prevent distraction in the future by acting today, by having these systems in place. I love that on so many levels. And, um, you know, around productive flourishing, we talk a lot about the power of defaults and thinking, okay, so, and, and there's a relationship between forethought and default here, right? Whereas we can create indistractable defaults Right. So that we're not having to use some of these things. I'm just doing the bridging here. Right. So it's like, you know, for instance, my wife and I, um, we have a rule that there's no electronics in the bedroom. Yes. Right. Um, no TVs, Kindle, Kindle paper rights count, but everything else out of the bedroom. Right. Right. Um, it turns out we're indistractable in the bedroom. I got to be careful about saying that, but you get what I'm saying, right? Totally. Uh, when we go in there and it's just choice architecture, it's just the default is that we have created spaces where it is 
really, really hard. Like we have to get up off the bed, mm. go into another room, grab a device and do something. And then because um, it's, you know, we talk about the burrito in a bathroom effect, right? Like we know that there are certain places we don't take food, like taking a burrito in the bathroom for most people, it just feels wrong. Right. Right. Some people do it. I'm not judging. But for most of us, we know that that's not what you don't take those types of things in the bathroom. It's not right. what it's for. Exactly. And I think when we create certain defaults where they're they're an indistractable default, like, you know, like I know when I walk into the bedroom with a phone, it does not feel right. It's a burrito in the bathroom. And even if I'm working or talk, or texting with a friend on the couch, I'm like, this is wrong. I go to another couch. Yeah. That yeah. doesn't happen there. Right. Totally. And th this is, it's a great example. And it's, it's a great example of, I think, you know, how we have been here before that, uh, we tend to think, you know, a lot of people right now are freaking out about technology is hijacking our brains is addicting us. The algorithms are telling us what to do. It's such nonsense. <laughs> and look, I know from firsthand experience, I know how these companies get people hooked. I wrote the book hooked. <laughs> I know every trick in the book. I wrote the book. Uh, and I can tell you these techniques that they use are good. They're not that good, right? The solutions uh, are out there. And you know what? If you know what the solutions are, they're actually not that difficult. They're not that hard. Uh, and, and so it's it's simple things that we can all do to make sure that we put the technology in its place, that it's not controlling us, that we are controlling it. And, and it, it is many things like, uh, like what I call hacking back, right? We know I use that term very intentionally. To hack means to gain unauthorized access into something. So a computer hacker would hack into a bank account, or for example. But there's no reason we can't hack back, that we are way more powerful. So the billions of dollars that they've spent on their algorithms and their computer servers and all that you know, technology they've used, we can fix it with the simplest of technology. You know what the 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 antidote to uh, all these crazy algorithms that distract you all the time simple things like how about having an alarm clock as opposed to using your phone to wake up in the morning we're the same way we don't have any technology in in the bedroom as well uh when we go to sleep nothing our, our rule is nothing that beeps or boops right so a kindle is fine it helps me actually fall asleep it's wonderful because it doesn't make any noise right like but no cell phones no television nothing that in the bedroom because it is a sacred space that's one of the uh, very important techniques. I will say, however, just to walk back a little bit of that, that hacking back the external triggers is is actually the easiest thing you can do. It's something that you know still this day uh, most people don't do. Two thirds of people with a smartphone get that. Two thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. Like what? Really? You're complaining that technology is distracting you when you haven't changed the notification settings? <laughs> like, and guess what? Zuckerberg can't turn them back on, right? They can't go back into your phone and turn on, on the notification settings. So, oh my God, Facebook is so distracting. It's always telling me what to do. Well, how about you turn off the notification settings <laughs> or uninstall the app from your phone? So many things we can do, but that's the easy stuff. Um, is, if it's okay, Charlie, do you, do you mind if we take a bit of a digression and I talk about like what is distraction? We didn't really get to like the, yeah, well, what it is. And, and we'll come back to the to the hard stuff. What I'll what I'll book in here is a lot of people haven't given themselves permission to mm. be indistractable mm. because of the identities they have around being instantly available and things like that. So I think we'll get back to that. But in case we go on a tangent, right? That that's that's where we're going with that fact. This folks is like yes. Super easy to leave your phone in your cubby when you walk in the house. It costs you zero <laughs> money, right? It, it, you don't have to buy another app, but you have to give yourself permission to not be 
um, ubiquitously online and connectable. And if you don't do that, then like the technology, like Zuckerberg can't t- flip a switch and, and make you, you know, available or not. That's you, but that's a different scenario. Um, you know, and start finishing, we'll roll back here, but I'm, I make a, a really big distinction between a uh, big distinction between interruptions and distractions. Yeah. Right. Because interruptions are external sources that have control over your attention that come in. So your kid can interrupt you, right. Um, they can open a door, run in and jump on your lap. Your phone can't open a door and run in and jump on your lap. Like if you go to your phone, it's because you are distracted. You are going to the phone. YouTube doesn't come to you. Facebook doesn't come to you. Um, You go to them or you allow them to come in. And that's a huge distinction for a lot of people because Mm -hmm. they require different strategies. But to roll back, what are those sort of four psychological factors that lead us to being distracted? Yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk about this for a second because I didn't I don't think I properly appreciated what is a distraction. So for for you know the best way to understand what distraction is is to understand what distraction is not. So most people think if you say okay, what's the opposite of distraction? They'll say the opposite of distraction is focus, right? Well, not exactly. The opposite of distraction if you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards the things you plan to do, pulls you towards your values, helps you become the kind of person you want to become. The opposite of traction is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you away from what you plan to do, anything that pulls you away from your values, pulls you away from becoming becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this is really important for a couple reasons. This isn't just uh, semantics. This is very important because I would argue that any action can be traction or distraction. Let me give an example. So for years, when I would sit down at my desk and say, okay, I'm going to work on that big project. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm going to stop procrastinating. I'm going to do that thing that I've been putting off. Here I go. I'm going to get started. But first, let me check some email, right? Let me just uh, scroll that Slack channel real quick. Let me just do the easy things on my to-do list real quick to start getting some momentum, right? And I would justify those things saying to myself, well, those are work-related tasks. I'm being productive. And what I didn't realize is that that is actually the most dangerous form of distraction, if you're putzing around playing uh, you know, Candy Crush on your phone at work, you know you're not on track. That's not what you're supposed to be doing at work. But if you're checking important emails or doing easy to-dos or checking uh, Slack channels, that somehow feels productive, but it's not. It's pseudo work, right? Pseudo work. It's the most dangerous form of distraction because you don't realize that if you said you were going to do one thing and you're doing something else, you are just as distracted as playing a video game. And even more so because you don't even realize you're distracted. So any action can be a distraction. Conversely, any action can be traction. So I am not one of these chicken little tech critics that says technology is melting your brain. The algorithms are hijacking your, your thoughts and mind. That's ridiculous. It's so stupid. Because the fact of the matter is there's nothing wrong with scrolling Facebook. There's nothing wrong with watching a a movie on Netflix or YouTube or doing whatever it is you want to do. Meditate, pray, go on a walk, paint, stare at the cracks in the ceiling. It doesn't matter as long as you do those things with intent. The difference between traction and distraction is forethought. You can actually turn these distractions into traction 
by planning time for them, right? The time you plan to waste is not wasted time. That anything you want to do, video games, Facebook, YouTube, whatever, as long as you do them on your schedule, not the tech companies, they're fine. There's nothing wrong with them. They're wonderful tools. So we shouldn't vilify the technology. We should figure out how to use it so it doesn't use us. So now we have traction. We have distraction. Now we have to ask ourselves, well, what prompts us to take these various actions? Two things. We have what we call external triggers and internal triggers. External triggers, this is what we talked about earlier, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment that leads us towards traction, what we plan to do, or distraction. So external triggers are not necessarily bad. If your phone rings and, and says, oh, now it's time for that phone call, now it's time for that meeting, now it's a reminder to tell me to go exercise or whatever it is that I plan to do, wonderful, it's traction. But if it's leading you off track, right, if you said you were going to work on a big project or be with your family or go do something else, and now you're checking your phone instead, well, now it's leading towards a distraction. But as bad as those potential external triggers are, that's nothing compared to the real source of the problem. The real source of the problem, even though people love to blame things outside themselves, the real source of the problem is that most distraction does not start outside of us, but rather what I discovered in my five years of researching this book that most distraction begins from within. That th These are called internal triggers. What are internal triggers? Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. So this is the icky sticky truth that we have to face, that all distraction, all procrastination is an emotion regulation problem. It is our desire to escape boredom, loneliness, fatigue, stress, anxiety. That is always the root cause of our desire to, to escape these uncomfortable emotional triggers with some kind of distraction, right? You're working on that big project. It's hard. It's not fun. It's boring. Okay, let me just go online. Let me check email. Let me do this. Let me do that, as opposed to doing what you said you were going to do. So now we have these four parts of the indistractable model. Step one, we have to master those internal triggers. Because one thing we have to understand here, and this is kind of one of the key lessons of the book, is that time management requires pain management. Let me say that again. Time management requires pain management. If you don't understand the reasons, the emotional reasons you are looking for escape, you will always get distracted by one thing or another. Even if you stop using Facebook forever, I promise you, if you don't deal with the discomfort, you'll find something. The news, booze, football, you know, Facebook, it's all the same stuff. You are going to look for escape unless you know how to deal with those internal triggers. The second step is to make time for traction. Just the simple act of keeping a calendar is so vitally important and, and very few people do it. And so this is why another big lesson of the book of the book is that you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what you got distracted from, right? You can't call something a distraction unless you know what you got distracted from. If you have a big white calendar with nothing on it, you know, completely blank, well, everything is a distraction because what the heck did you say you're going to do with your time? So we have to make time for traction by turning our values into time. And I'll show you exactly how to do that. The third step is to hack back the external triggers, which we talked about a little bit earlier. This is kind of the easy, most practical stuff, you know, uh, hacking back your phone, hacking back your computer. We also go into some of the, uh, uh, the deeper stuff, you know, hacking back meetings, hacking back email. And now more recently with so many of us working from home, how do you hack back the interruptions that come from your kids, for example? We love them to death, but they can be incredibly distracting. So I show you exactly how to do that. And then finally, the last step, the firewall against distraction 
is preventing distraction with pacts. And so this is where we make some kind of a barrier between us and the distraction. I show you actually, ironically enough, how to use technology to prevent getting distracted by technology. So it's really about the reason that, you know, no life hacks and tips and tricks are the magic bullet is that you have to use all these four techniques in concert, right? Mastering the internal triggers, making time for traction, hacking back external triggers, and preventing distraction with packs. When you do something in all four categories, this is how we finally become indistractable. But Nir, I want a secret pill. I want to do like the one hack that that works for everything. No, I appreciate that. Um, you know, so we're talking about packs. You know, we talk about in start finishing. We talk about success packs. You can have a distraction success pack that helps you with these things in the same way. Mm. Um, you know, I wanted to roll back a little bit though. Um, and let's talk about willpower because I think this is where, um, here's what I said. When I read your section about willpower, um, I was a bit hostile to it, to be honest. Um, cause I was like, ah, cause you know, I'd been reading the same social science where people were like, you know, here's what it is. Um, which, you know, um, willpower is more like a muscle than it is anything else. And so you have a limited pool of it. You get, you know, willpower fatigued, all of those different types of concepts. So when I read it, I was like, mm, I'm not so sure about that one. Um, because it doesn't really track with my experience, but I sit with it, right? Because I'm like, okay, let's pretend. Let's pretend I'm not right about this. <laughs> let's pretend I can actually hear him on this. What would happen? What would change for me? And after about a week or two, I came around to it. I know I could be, I could be stubborn. Right. Um, but I was like, huh, this is a useful and different way of thinking about it and actually more closely tracks the ebbs and flow of my energy throughout the day. Yeah. So not to steal so much of your thunder here, but I think like, I know you said, um, you know, you had one takeaway. I want this to be the second takeaway for people to really learn. Cause I think people check out, um, of what they're capable of doing because of this limiting belief about willpower. All right, yeah. ready? Yeah. Go. So yeah, let me let me just catch everybody up on 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 what I say, which is which is fairly controversial. A lot of people uh, haven't heard this updated research because you know it, this kind of stuff takes a long time to filter from academia to the popular press to then the general population. So uh, a few years ago, there was this idea of ego depletion, and there was one particular researcher that did a lot of of uh, of research around this concept of willpower being a depletable resource. And he called it ego depletion. And he showed these various studies that, that you run out of willpower like you would run out of gas in a gas tank. And um, that was something that kind of captured the public's imagination. It's uh, something that we kind of want to believe that, oh, you see, I'm spent. You know, this would happen to me. I didn't even know it was called ego depletion, but this was kind of my daily routine. I would come home from work and I would say, oh boy, I am spent. Uh, I, I have no more willpower. Uh, I, I need that pint of Ben and Jerry's and I'm going to sit on the couch and watch Netflix, right? Because I'm spent. I have no more willpower left. And, uh, it turns out that when other social scientists looked into those studies and what we do in this, in the social sciences, when a study sounds too good to be true, it sounds like, you know, mm, this is a little fishy. Uh, we don't necessarily say the study's wrong, we replicate the study, we do it again. And what other social scientists found when they replicated these studies that were purported to show that ego depletion was real, that you run out of willpower like gas in a gas tank, they could not replicate these studies. They could not replicate them. 
And it turns out that what we have since learned is that willpower is not a depletable resource. In fact, right now, there's a whole raging debate in academia whether willpower is really a thing, right? Whether it's actually this idea of willpower is, is actually real. Uh, but 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 when it comes to ego depletion, we are pretty well uh, concluded now. You know, you never you know you never finish studying this stuff in in the social sciences, but we're pretty darn sure that ego depletion is not real, except except in one group of people. So the work of Carol Dweck, which you may uh, I think you probably read Mindset, wonderful book. Mm -hmm. Her work is really phenomenal. So she decided to look into this this question of. Do we run out of willpower? Do we spend it like we would burn up gas in a gas tank? And she found that, in fact, for one group of people, they really did exhibit ego depletion. They really did run out of willpower, just one group of people. And that group of people was only the people who believed that willpower was a limited resource. So if you were the kind of person who believed that you are spent, that you ran out of willpower, that's that's it, no more willpower left, you acted accordingly, which is so important, so interesting. It's back to what we were talking about identity in this, this section of the book that I call Reimagining Your Temperament. We find people doing the exact same thing right now with this ridiculous idea that we're all quote unquote addicted, okay? There is no other pathology that we describe this way, right? That we say, oh, I'm addicted to this, I'm addicted to that. Well, addiction is a disease, it's a pathology. And somehow, you know, everything that I like a lot, I'm addicted to? No, <laughs> it's ridiculous. And the reason I think it's so dangerous is because when we think that we are a certain way, when we think that the technology is overpowering us, that it's controlling us, that it's, you know, hijacking our brains, we act accordingly. This is called learned helplessness. We stop trying. We say, well, there's nothing I can do, right? I'm out of willpower. Nothing I can do. The technology is addictive. And we don't do anything about it. And so that's why it's so important that we really ask ourselves whether these identities, whether these perceptions of our temperament are really serving us, starting with these myths around you know, willpower, ego depletion, and this, this ridiculous notion that we're somehow all addicted. Yeah, and so very practically, what I used to do is much like what you're saying. It's like, I've done, I've made all the decisions I'm going to do. I've got decision fatigue and willpower fatigue and all these sort of things. And just be like, 5.30, I'm done. Can't do anything else, right? Um, after that, I started playing with it. I was like, what if I just needed to recharge for a little bit? Yeah. What if that was it? Like, it's not that I was depleted for the day. It was just, there was a mood or I need to eat or I need to go on a walk or I need to do some of those types of things. Now, having the gumption to like be like I'm tired, like energetically tired and then going for a walk, that's still hard, right? Um, but it's not from the thing of like, I can't do it, I'm done. Like I've reached the bottom of the barrel. It's just, I need to figure out a way to re-engage. And then once I have some of these, um, what we call, you know, on, on in the PF community, well, once I have some recovery blocks, Lo and behold, I can dive back into things, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And this, I, I learned this in a way that I didn't, I didn't appreciate previously before I read the book, because you know, every once in a while, I'll go on like a thirty-day challenge where I'll do something, ride the Peloton for thirty days. I just, the rule is, I got to do it before I go to bed. 
Mm. It doesn't matter. Like as long as I do it before they go to bed. And there've been times where I've been writing or playing the guitar or, you know, on the Peloton at like 11, 15 at night. Cause I'm like, I can't go to sleep until I do this. Right. Right. And it turns out all of a sudden there was willpower there for that. It turns out that like you was like, there's a commitment to doing it. And you learn like, wait a second, I can actually ride the Peloton at 11, 15 at night and still go to bed. Right. That's not a, that's not a thing that you can't like that. That's, you, it's impossible for you to do it. So it just opens that space. And so I hope our listeners open that space. Like, what if, like, if you, if you, if you're really bought off on the willpower is a, is a depletable asset. Okay. That's great. Right. But just pretend, what would you do differently? What, how would you play with that idea and test it and see if it's just one of those things where maybe if you recharge a little bit, or maybe if you re-engage in a different way, you might find that on the other side of your depletion is actually more willpower. Yeah, you know, it's 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 you you said a critical word there. Uh, you you said the word mood, and it turns out that what the research reveals today is the the latest theory around well, what is willpower? If willpower is not a depletable resource, what is it exactly? And according to Michael Inslich, who's a researcher in the University of Toronto, he says, look, willpower is just a feeling; it's an emotion, and so it's ridiculous to think that we run out of happy. You don't you don't say, oh, I'm having such a great day. I'm so happy. Everything's awesome. And then, oh, I ran out of happy or, oh, I'm so angry at you. I'm so mad. Oh, now I ran out of angry. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. We don't run out of emotions. We don't run out of willpower. Uh, we, we could get physically fatigued. Of course, that that really exists. But this idea, this it, it, this is really a mindset that somehow, oh, I can't make any more decisions. I can't expend any more willpower. This is just a cultural con- uh, construct. It has nothing to do with with reality. It is not a limitation unless, of course, you believe it is a limitation. So a much healthier approach is to say, to look at it like an emotion. And in the moment, an emotion can feel like it's going to last forever. And this is where we talk about in the book this technique called surfing the urge, uh, where where we realize that emotions are like waves. And the way we we get through a difficult emotion is that we ride it out. We ride it out with introspection. Because in the moment, when you're angry, it feels like you're going to be angry forever, right? You don't realize that, of course, wait 10 minutes and you're not going to be angry anymore, (laughs) right? That, That these emotions are like waves. And so one of the techniques we can use, and this comes from acceptance and commitment therapy, I didn't make this up, it's a technique where we can surf that urge for a short period of time until it crests and then subsides. So when we really don't feel like doing something, we really don't feel like riding that Peloton, these are things that we can overcome. You know, So for example, one of the simplest things we can do is to give ourselves a very small uh, you know, uh, a very small nudge to say like, you know, I'm not gonna work out, I'm just gonna go to the gym, okay? I'm not gonna lift weights, I'm just gonna go to the gym. And, and if I want, I'm going to r- come right back. And what we find is by the time we actually go to the gym, even if we tell ourselves, I'm not going to pick up a single weight. Once we get there, we say, all right, maybe I'll lift a couple weights. All right, maybe I'll go on the treadmill for just a couple minutes. But that's nothing more. And of course, that, 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 uh, uh, that friction, that resistance disappears if we just give it some time like we would an emotion. Absolutely. And and what I'll add to that, I know, um, unfortunately, I have to let you go um, here pretty soon. But the other thing that I would add to that small nudge to go to a place, and it's, a, I think, something we can use for um, becoming indistractable is think about the ways in which certain spaces and context can prime you for certain types of activities. And so, yes, it's we say we go to the gym, but the second you walk into the gym, you're then primed in so many different ways, psychologically, emotionally, socially, to do the thing that the gym is for, 
right? Um, the gym is not for going around, walking around saying you're not going to work out. The gym is for like getting on a machine and, and you got sort of that nudge. And I think too many people underplay or, or discount the power of environment design of creating mm-hmm. sort of offices or workspaces or contexts or desktops. I know you talk about a lot about desktops such that it primes them to, you know, be indistractable as opposed to always fighting against an environment or again, relying on just brute force willpower to get through because it shouldn't matter how many icons are on your screen. Like you can focus. Turns out not so much. <laughs> yeah, it turns out. Um, there are so many other directions we could take today's call uh, or today's podcast. And I appreciate your time today. And um, there's one other piece that I'm going to add in here. Um, and I think this is important when we start talking about the behavior change. And it's, it's one of the steps that I wanted to pull off, pull out, which is beware of those, li- those liminal moments, right? Because I, from my experience working with people, coaching people, um, it's in those liminal moments that um, that commitment, that choice, that that thing sort of slips away and you you're in a way not making a choice because you're in sort of this in-between place. Like you're not like, Oh, I'm on to the next thing I'm in between. And that's Mm. where distraction comes in. And so, um, you know, I really hope readers pick up the book. Um, If you really wanted to focus, here's what I'd say in in a little bit. If you really want to focus on some places to find some place to get some traction and to become more indistractable, be hyper aware of those liminal moments, those moments between things, between waking up and going to bed, or excuse me, between waking up and getting out of the bed, between getting in bed and going in bed, between being off bed, those boundaries are where so many distractions creep in. And I think if you were just to do an 80-20 and focus there, you might find some ways to become more indistractable um, faster because I think that's where it slips. Now, as the guest on today's podcast here, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge, depending upon which one most resonates with you. So based upon what we've talked about, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? So let let me start with the challenge and then I'll get to the invitation. So I think that the challenge I would like to propose is to pick one thing that you can do in each of these four key strategies, Uh, starting with mastering the internal triggers. How can you learn to to uh, to master these uncomfortable emotional states. I think this is something that the vast majority of books out there about productivity, uh, about time management, around focus, they don't deal with. I think the deeper psychological reason why we look for escape, why we deal, why we look for an escape from discomfort in this way with distraction. So the challenge would be think of you know, what are those internal triggers in your life? What's pulling you away from what you said you're going to do in any facet of your life? Then how can you make time for traction in one small area of your life? Can you plan an afternoon, uh, maybe one day of the week in a, in a systematic fashion? I tell you exactly how to do that, how to use what, what I call time boxing. It's a well-studied technique uh, around how to make sure that you turn your values into time. Then how can you hack back one external trigger? Is there one thing that you find takes you off track, some kind of external trigger, something in your outside environment that pulls you away from what you want to do? And then finally, is there one pact that you can make with yourself to make sure that as a, as a fail-safe, as a firewall, you don't get pulled off track? And so there's some things that any of us can do uh, in, in you know less than 30 minutes, we can start using these four tactics. But I will say, you have to do all four. That there is never going to be, oh, this is the one thing, the one magic bullet. You, it's really about using these four techniques in concert. So that's the challenge for the next week. See if you can do one thing from each of these four strategies. 
And then the invitation, I, you know, please come check out my website, nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R. Uh, I will invite you as well. There's a complimentary 80-page workbook that you can get whether you buy the book or not. We actually couldn't fit it into the final edition of the book because it got too fat. So you can get that on my website at nearandfar.com. It's this complimentary, indistractable workbook. Nir, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a great conversation, as I knew it would be after a year waiting for it. Again, thanks for writing this book, and congrats for all the success for it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Likewise. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, We'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes. 